Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Today's show features a remarkable new book, Sea Chain, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. Excuse me, that's Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. This book uses maps, testimonies, timelines, poetry, art, and narrative to create an immersive, decolonized portrait of 49 islands and archipelagos around the world. Sea Change was named one of the best popular science books of 2023 by the New Scientist magazine. Author Rebecca Solnit calls the book, quote, a stunning atlas of the present and future. Sea level rise will make all current atlases obsolete. This book makes tangible and visible both the physical changes and their cultural and emotional and social impact. Joining me to talk about this new atlas of islands is its creator, Christina Gerhardt. Dr. Gerhardt is an associate professor of German at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where she teaches environmental humanities. Her climate journalism has also appeared in The Progressive, The Nation, and Grist. And Tina Gerhardt will be presenting the book Sea Change this coming Sunday, the 25th, at 5 p.m. at Room of One's own bookstore here in Madison. She'll be in conversation live with Tia Nelson there at a Room of One's own. Welcome to A Public Affair, Tina. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Douglas. It's great to be with you. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for author Tina Gerhardt or an experience with islands you'd like to share, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message A Public Affair on Facebook. Well, there is so much to talk about in this book. Uh, it is so multifaceted and takes us all around the world. So we're going to try to talk about a little bit of everything today, Tina. And we'll start with this idea of the book's premise, which is really that it wants those of us who don't live on islands to think about them differently. In your un- introduction, you talk about how vacationing on an island, living on an island, emigrating from an island, all create vastly different perspectives. Tell us more about these perspectives and how this atlas helps us understand them. Right. So one of the things that I'm trying to do in Sea Change in my new book is to really, I use academic lingo, I talk about decontinentalizing the gaze. And what I mean by that is if we are living on a continent, if I realize your listeners could be all over the place, but if they're in the Madison area, and they're, they're living on a continent away from the coastlines, then maybe islands to them are really remote places. Obviously, they're not to people who are living on the islands or to um, who are from the islands or people who have emigrated there. But one of the things I'm trying to do is really transport people to islands and see islands from an islander vantage point. And yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the history of what you call the continental gaze. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just mentioned decontinentalize. What yeah. what is the history of this way that islands have often been represented in Western culture broadly, and there's a relationship there to the colonization of islands as well. We could start there of getting that perspective, and then we'll dive into the many perspectives of islanders you give us. Yeah, sure. So I open the book talking a little bit about the way that islands have figured in the Western imagination, the Western civ imagination, a colonizer perspective often. And so, and I think, you know, it's a good good moment for me to bring in the genesis of, of the book in terms of my work experience. So I talk a little bit about the kinds of images of islands um, that your listeners might be familiar with. For example, Robinson Crusoe, the way that islands have figured there. One can think of uh, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Um, And one of the things I noticed when I started working on this project, basically there's two different genesis 
genesis for the project. On the one hand, I'm an environmental journalist. I've been covering the UN climate negotiations since about 2009. And they take place annually at the end of the year. And what happens in the climate negotiations is the following. Um, you have 198 member states. I mean, there's 193 nations, but a couple of things like the EU are not nations. So there's 198 member states, 193 nations. And whatever topic is being discussed before the nation stands up and weighs in on it, because the UN has a consensus decision-making process, they'll acknowledge the situation in their home country. So last year, Pakistan was acknowledging that a third of its country was underwater. Uh, about uh, 3,000 people died, half of whom were children, billions of dollars of damage. Um, the other situation that kept coming up and has continued into this year is the drought, the ongoing drought in the Horn of Africa. So when you're a journalist there and you're covering the climate negotiations, you have a visceral sense of what's going on around the world in frontline communities from their own vantage points, the problems, the impacts, the solutions. And then you look at even the best journalism covering this, and I'll just cite The Guardian because they have a an environment section that has been covering the climate crisis for a very long time. And you'll see them focused on the US-China standoff. And I don't think it's wrong to talk about that topic. I think it's a huge piece of the puzzle. John Kerry just today announced that as climate envoy for the US, he thinks you know this, is, this deserves special attention. Um, but what that occludes from view is the rest of the world. And the reason the U.S. China get a lot of attention is because the U.S. is historically the largest emitter of CO2 emissions. China is, is deemed to be the largest emitter presently, but a lot of people say, well, really a lot of its emissions should fall on the U.S. ledger because a bunch of its emissions are created by things that are produced for consumers in the U.S. who buy it and it's shipped over to the US and both the emissions of producing all that stuff and shipping it over should fall on the US ledger, not the China ledger, but that's a different issue. So, you know, it's it, it prevents us from hearing the stories from frontline communities. And given that I was hearing them daily for two weeks, I started to think about how to bring them to a broader audience. And this topic is often deemed to be a really bleak one. And so I started to think about how to make you know, using environmental journalism strategies, the kinds of things we think about in the environmental humanities. I was thinking a lot about communications. And so I thought about doing a, a coffee table book. <laughs> you mentioned at the top, it, it has a, a, I call it a symphony. It has a polyvocal, polyphonic approach. It weaves together poetry, art, science, maps, um, testimonies. And so I use that approach. But the other thing, aside from my environmental journalism perspective, and this comes back full circle to your question at the outset, is when I moved to Hawaii about a decade ago to start my position at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, I was listening, going to readings regularly by islanders, reading their writings, and I noticed the incredible dissonance in the imaginary between how people on continents imagine islands. They either have no experience with it or it's these texts from Western Civ, or it's a, it's a tourism experience, or it's a military experience. And I really wanted to counter that by bringing the voices of Islanders to the forefront. I think we'll move to one of those voices now, Tina. As you said, the book really is focused on centering uh, islands and island perspectives and reversing this continental notion that islands are small and dependent places, right? That they're tiny. And there's this wonderful testimony from a Tongan author named Apili Haufufa, or you can correct me if I didn't get that right, um, in your section on Tonga, the Pacific Island Kingdom of Tonga. And I'd like to just have you read the first two paragraphs of that testimony because it so beautifully uh, evokes this island-centered perspective. Sure. Yeah. So this is, I'll read the first two paragraphs um, that are excerpted in the book from an essay of um, Tongan um, anthropologist Epili Haofa. He is uh, one of the best known Pacific Islander uh, theoreticians, and this is one of his most cited, I think probably is his most cited essay. Um, so it's not familiar to a lot of people outside of the Pacific Islands or Pacific Island studies. It's very familiar to people in these regions and in these studies. Haofa writes, 
Do people in most of Oceania live in tiny confined spaces? The answer is yes, if one believes what certain social scientists are saying. But the idea of smallness is relative. It depends on what is included and excluded in any calculation of size. When those who hail from continents or from islands adjacent to continents, and the vast majority of human beings live in these regions, when they see a Polynesian or Micronesian island, they naturally pronounce it small or tiny. Their calculation is based entirely on the extent of the land surface they see. But if we look at the myths, legends, and oral traditions, indeed the cosmologies of the peoples of Oceania, it becomes evident that they did not conceive of their world in such microscopic proportions. Their universe comprised not only land surfaces, but the surrounding ocean, as far as they could traverse. It, the underworld with its fire-controlling and earth-shaking denizens, the heavens above with their hierarchies of powerful gods and named stars and constellations that people could count on to guide their ways out across the sea. Their world was anything but tiny. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking with author Tina Gerhardt about her new book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean. If you'd like to join the conversation about islands, about the climate crisis and sea level rise, share some experiences with islands, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, you can also tweet us at WRT Talk or Message of Public Affair on Facebook. So that was one of many uh, dozens, really, right, of island voices in this book. Tell us a little bit more about the process of including these voices, how you found them, um, how you decided who to include. Uh, how did you create this, as you said, polyphonic symphony of voices? So Sea Change um, weaves together these different disciplines and approaches. And I conducted hundreds of interviews with scientists for the essays. Um, I did archival research. The University of Hawaii at Manoa has a large library focused, uh, large collection within its library focused on Pacific Island studies. So I spent months reading the writings of Pacific Islanders there. Um, these are select volumes of poetry that ran in very limited print editions, typically not held by libraries um, in other locations uh, and often out of print. And then after that came the challenge of chasing down the islanders whose poems and writings I included because I had to get permissions in order to reprint them. And that was often a challenge. Um, so those are some of the processes that that went into it. What I was looking for is to really, in the book, center Islanders' voices. So there's 49 islands um, in sea change that are included. Some are island nations, some are islands that are uh, still occupied, colonized, part of commonwealths, um, and some are part of larger archipelagic nation states. But I was looking at the most at-risk islands. So the book is really about sea level rise and its impacts on islands and also the solutions to those impacts often put forward by the islanders themselves, even though they have really tiny economies. Um, so I picked the, the four most at-risk island nations, of course, and those are the islands of Kiribati, Tuvalu, and Marshall Islands in the Pacific, and then the uh, island nation of the Maldives in the, in the Indian Ocean. They're all low-lying atolls. Um, I also included, so there's two different kinds of islands in the book. There's low-lying island nations or atolls, and then there are high islands or volcanic islands. Low-lying islands or atolls are, as the name suggests, low-lying. And so they are most at risk of sea level rise. The Marshall Islands is on average about six and a half feet above sea level rise, we are looking at, or, or at least the figures that we used for sea change are based on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as Science. That's the UN scientific um, body. There's hundreds of scientists that work on putting out these reports. They come out about every five years. So the most recent one, um, the IPCC's report from last, uh, came out last year. I think it's the sixth report. And it predicts that there will be one foot of sea level rise by 2050. 
and up to three feet of sea level rise by 2100. Now, the thing with the IPCC reports is they're really conservative. So I have talked to scientists. I did a book launch for Sea Change here in California, and I was in conversation there with our local NPR KQED climate reporter, Ezra Romero, and then climate scientist and ICC, IPCC uh, contributor, Christina Hill, who works on sea level rise. And she said, we could see six to eight feet by the end of the century. There's also regional variation. But back to the Marshall Islands. So if I talk about the Marshall Islands being six and a half feet on average above sea level rise, and we're looking at three, six or eight feet by the end of the century, that's a really severe level of impact. And I think the issue with sea level rise is not whether or not an island is going to be underwater. It's whether or not life is really livable, given the frequency of inundation. So, you know, if you're soaked, if your home is soaked, probably your listeners have seen photos after Katrina or Sandy of people in homes after the water has receded with those water lines on the walls or just everything moldy and mildewy because a lot of these environments are also high humidity environments. We have to think about homes just really not, they're being flooded so often they're not inhabitable. So I have the low-lying islands on the one hand. I also included volcanic islands, which my editor, my cartographer, I worked with cartographer Molly Roy on making the maps uh, for sea change. They both were like, why are we including high islands? Because as the name suggests, they're high islands. Most people on high islands don't live um, on the steep incline of a high island. So you can think of sort of a, a peak, peaked island because of the steep incline. Sometimes like we see in, in the big island of Hawaii right now, those volcanoes are actually still active. And so you don't want to be near that. And that leads people to be clustered around the coastline. And if you have people packed along the coastline, along with all the infrastructure that people bring with them or create highways, airports, wastewater treatment facilities, uh, power plants, all that clustering and population density means that those people there are going to be more impacted. So sea level rise impacts high islands too, even if they're not going to be underwater. And I would just add, you mentioned this in the book, it, it impacts um, access to fresh water as well, right? In addition to, to inundation, there's that issue. Tell us a little bit more about that and, and particularly in these Pacific Island nations that you've mentioned. Right. So the issue of um, access to fresh water, to potable drinking water is really important. Low-lying islands or atolls, if your listeners aren't familiar, should basically in our imagination be volcanic islands that have slowly sunk underwater. So imagine the top of the volcano, sort of a circular shape, like the top of a coffee mug, and that is what an atoll is. It's circular in shape. It's a couple of yards across. It's often just a few uh, miles around. And it's a circular shape and often not contiguous because it's sunk so low that the water has already made it a non-contiguous circle. So in terms of fresh water, then, when the salt water comes in on these low-lying atolls, their, their main source of drink, it has the following impacts. Their main source of, of fresh water are freshwater aquifers or rainwater catchment. So rainwater catchment is, as the name suggests, literally setting up some sort of a basin barrels, uh, rain rainwater barrels, in order to catch water that falls from the sky. There's no, there's no rivers that flow through these uh, atolls because they're so tiny and low-lying. And so they either catch rainwater or there are freshwater aquifers. And when those get inundated with salt water, it, it makes the, the fresh, I mean, it, it just contaminates the fresh water. And so humans can't drink it. Animals, whether that's pets or livestock, can't drink it. And the other impact is that um, agriculture plants can't deal with salt water. There's very few plants that can. And so the other impact of, of the salt water lapsing onto islands, aside from affecting the freshwater access, is that it upsets soil salinity. So you want the soil to not have too much salt water in it for the reasons I just mentioned, because plants can't take up salt water. And a lot of the islands in sea change, and this is true, a lot of islands globally have really low economies. So if you measure that by GDP, if you measure it by average annual income of individuals, they're really living at a threshold. Um, that means that people are subsistence farmer or fisher folk. 
Um, they feed themselves by what they grow or what they fish. Um, and if you have less of, rather than going, say, to the grocery store in a car on foot or getting takeout from a local restaurant, and that means that if you have the salinized soil and it's upsetting how much you can grow, it's upsetting how much people can feed themselves. So there's a really important like, ecosystem that's being upset here. Can you um, tell us just for uh, those of uh, our listeners out there who uh, might not understand exactly the dynamics of sea level rise, exactly what's happening, we should make sure that's clear as yet. Because there are a couple dimensions to it, right? To the actual physical process of why sea level is rising so quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I start um, in talking about the book, I start with the main reasons for sea level rise. There's there's mainly two. Um, sea levels rise because of the melt at the Arctic, um, in the Arctic and the Antarctic, so at the poles. And I open the book with Greenland and I talk about the land ice melt there. I also talk in that opening chapter about the impact of land ice melting um, in, in Greenland on the Marshall Islands halfway around the globe. And the reason I start the book that way is I want us to really think about how we are all connected. And this gets back to, I guess, decontinentalizing the gaze. The things that happen in Greenland affect the Marshall Islands. Our actions in the U.S. are in action because we are the largest emitter historically. Our actions here or inaction really has effects on island nations around the world. So the first thing is the melting at the poles for sea level rise. The other thing uh, is warmer water expands. So there's been a lot of coverage this month because it's ocean month um, for that reason, but also because uh, the oceans are so warm. There's been a lot of coverage of this issue. Whenever your listeners hear uh, scientists talking about news coverage, talking about the wa water being very warm, they should think about a couple of things that should translate immediately into sea level rise because warmer water expands. And they should also think about the fact that that leads to an increase in intensified hurricanes. And we're seeing that in the Atlantic right now too. Um, the impacts of sea level rise that you asked about, the the impacts of sea level rise that you asked about um, in, in terms of some of the effects, aside from salinization of soil and of aquifers that I mentioned, I think one thing that's important to think about, and I had to talk about this with cartographer Molly Roy in creating the book, also my editor, sea level rise shouldn't be thought of as a line coming at you. If you're standing at the coastline, you're looking out at the water, it shouldn't be thought of as a line coming at you. It should be thought about as a zone of inundation that I was describing previously. And then the other thing is, is that sea level rise counterintuitively is not a story only about oceans. So I met with my colleague, oceanographer Chip Fletcher at Uachimanoa when I started this project. And he said, this is really a story of geology. So all of the islands that are in sea change, I went through and I studied the geology of each one too. So if you're in Florida or neighboring Bahamas, for example, these are areas that consist of limestone. I refer to, it's porous. I refer to it as the Swiss cheese of geology because it's not porous. And it, it allows water to seep up from below. It actually sucks up the water because it's that porous. And so when the Surfside condo collapse happened a couple years ago, which some of your listeners might remember, um, in, in the area of Miami, there was a condo that collapsed. I immediately, I didn't know all the details, but I immediately knew what to research. And through doing research for the book, I knew who to interview because the Bahamas are in the book. Um, I knew that very likely the salt water had, had rushed up and had probably corroded some of the concrete, had corroded some of the pipes, had made that building... Um, not very, very stable and had led to, to its demise. And so I think we should think about sea level rises coming from underneath too. Now that's really important to think about because a lot of toxic zones are located in soil. And some of these toxic messes, Christina Hill, who I mentioned previously is working on this issue in the Bay Area, but I was just reading an article by Tristan Barak who 
is a journalist working in New Orleans on this very topic because of the petroleum industry in southern Louisiana. A lot of toxic sites um, were left as toxic sites here in the Bay Area before national legislation was put in place. You know, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act that stipulated that the soil had to be remediated up to a certain standard before it could be turned over to city. And now you have schools or something like that located on former industrial sites. The water is coming up, all the toxins are coming up, and you might have school children on their lunch break playing in that area. So sea level rise is posing these kinds of you know concerns and issues and risks too. And far beyond islands, uh, yeah. when you talk about it that way, right? It's clear that it's, it's uh, affecting coastlines everywhere. Yeah, that's author Tina Gerhardt talking about her new book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I would love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for Tina Gerhardt or want to share an experience with islands, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Tina, you were just talking there as you talked about sea level rise and the the complex dynamics of it, about the interconnectedness of different places around the world. And you mentioned the ice sheets in Greenland melting, and you mentioned the Marshall Islands, this island nation in the Pacific. And your book includes a really remarkable poem called Rise, and it's one of the things I really appreciate about this book in general is the way you've incorporated poetry as well to bring uh, a different dimension to discussion of this issue. Your book includes this poem called Rise that is co-authored by indigenous poets from Greenland and the Marshall Islands. Um, Kathy Jetneal Kijiner from the Marshall Islands and Aka Niviana from Greenland. And the two poets dialogue with each other to create this really moving evocation of their respective traditions and how the fates of these two far apart islands are so intimately intertwined. So this poem um, was co-authored, but then produced by the nonprofit organization 350.org as a video that involved the production team going to a melting glacier in Greenland and then um, witnessing also the rising ocean in the Marshall Islands. And of course, we can't see that here all on the radio, but we can listen to it. And we're going to listen now to a couple of minutes of the poem, which is posted on the 350.org website. Anybody can access it there. And the poem is included in this book, Sea Change, as well, to really bring to life this issue of the interconnectedness of uh, the rising ocean and places around the world. So we're going to hear uh, Rise right now from Kathy Jetneal Kijiner and Aka Niviana. Sister of ice and snow, I'm coming to you from the land of my ancestors, from atolls, sunken volcanoes, undersea descent of sleeping giants. Sister of ocean and sand, I welcome you to the land of my ancestors, to the land where they sacrificed their lives to make mine possible, to the land of survivors. I'm coming to you from the land my ancestors chose, Ailankainan, Marshall Islands, a country more sea than land. I welcome you to Kadashitnunan, Greenland, the biggest island on earth. With me I bring these shells that I picked from the shores of Beginni Atoll and Runid Dome. In my hand I hold these rocks picked from the shores of Luke, the foundation of the land I call my home. these shells I bring with me a story of long ago. Two sisters frozen in time on the island of Buyai. One magically turned to stone. The other who chose that life to be rooted by her sister's side. To this day, the two sisters can be seen by the edge of the reef. A lesson in permanence. With these rocks I bring a story told countless times. A story about Sisuma Amna, mother of the sea, who lives in a cave at the bottom of the ocean. This is a story about the guardian of the sea, 
She sees the greed in our hearts, the disrespect in our eyes. Every whale, every stream, every iceberg are her children. When we disrespect them, she gives us what we deserve, a lesson in respect. Do we deserve the melting ice, the hungry polar bears coming to our islands, or the colossal icebergs hitting these waters with rage? From one island to another, I ask for solutions. From one island to another, I ask for your problems. Let me show you the tide coming for us faster than we'd like to admit. Let me show you. That is Rise, written by indigenous poets Kathy Jetneil Kijiner and Akaniviana from the Marshall Islands and Greenland, respectively, and that is featured on uh, the 350.org website and included in the book we're talking about today, published, written by Tina Gerhardt, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. Tina, tell us uh, a little bit about why you included that poem, what it means to you, what it represents to you. Yeah, thanks for playing that excerpt. Um, I include this poem after the first chapter on Greenland. Uh, Because the poem has Greenlandic Akaniviana in conversation with indigenous Marshall Islander uh, and also climate envoy and poet Kathy Jetnil Kieschner, because I think it illustrates really well the impact that ice melt on Greenland has halfway around the globe on the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific. And so it is a really visceral illustration of how we are all connected. It's impacting both regions, right? Any of the regions that are no longer as cold and as frozen as they were because the heat right now is taking place disproportionately in the Arctic are experiencing the melting of their permafrost. So I talk about the island of Shishmaref off the west coast of Alaska where the islanders are receiving federal funds in order to move because their homes are literally toppling. Their ice is no longer melted, so they they cannot hunt and fish the way that they used to, using sleds, et cetera, to go hunting. And then it has impacts on the Marshall Islands, which are experiencing sea level rise and are inundated. So it has effects in both locations, but they're also connected. And what I thought was interesting is Greenland is the world's largest island and the world's smallest ocean but its population is about the same number as the tiny Marshall Islands, which are spread over a vast millions of of square miles of ocean, even if the land mass is very tiny. Um, The population is about the same and the percentage of indigenous peoples in that population is about the same at 85%. And so that's another reason. We have a caller on the line, Tina, with a question about freshwater inland islands. And I was actually wanting to prompt you to talk about this as well, about the choices you made. So uh, we'll go ahead to Tracy. You're on a public affair. Oh, hello. Thanks so much for for um, talking about this book. I'm really excited to hear more about it and uh, hopefully get over to Room of One's Own. It's Wednesday, right? The this coming Sunday. Oh, it's on Sunday. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, I wanted to know, I've been thinking a lot about islands lately, so this is very apropos, um, and the, especially like the islands in the Great Lakes. Um, and, of course, the Great Lakes got opened up to, you know, more ocean travel, which has really affected all the inland waters in this country. Um, but there are people who live year-round on the islands, that are in the Great Lakes. You've got uh, Madeline Island in Wisconsin, got Manitoulin Island in Canada. So I wondered if you considered any uh, inland islands. Yeah, thanks so much for your call, Tracy, and for the great question and bringing attention to inland islands and in the Great Lakes region in particular. I don't have inland islands in the book. I'm just thinking to make sure I'm not hopping over anything there. I don't really count this as inland. Deal Island and Chesapeake Bay is included. So it's inland-ish. And I think that's the only one off the top of my head that's inland. But I I think you're absolutely right in bringing attention to the impacts of sea level rise on inland islands. And the reason why they're impacted in terms of sea level rise is because our water systems are connected. 
I had a year and a half long visiting uh, professorship at Princeton. And one of the things I learned there is that it's not only their coastline, which gets talked about a lot, that's affected, but it's also the way the water gets pushed in through the river system that affects uh, coastal communities that are along rivers. So, uh, which is a way of saying sea level rise is often thought of as an ocean story, but what you're absolutely right in pointing out is that it's also a river, meaning the St. Lawrence, and a lake story. And so I think that's an absolutely crucial point. Um, islands are affected by, the, the, um, by, by wave action. So that constant uh, pounding of coastlines by waves leads to erosion. And that's one of the ways that sea level rise impacts are intensified. When you have that erosion eating away at a coastline that doesn't have any kind of uh, buffer along it anymore, that erosion is going to lead to an intensification of sea level rise. A lot of the buffers along coastlines have been done away with because for tourism communities, we move uh, things like coral reefs that can, can create a natural buffer. We move them away because tourists like to be in a hotel right along the coastline with sand in front of it. And then nothing like a foot cutting coral reef in that sand so that they can walk into the ocean and go for a swim. So, you know, the coral reefs have, have been moved often for that reason. Um, the increase in ocean temperature also leads to ocean acidification, which is one of the reasons why coral reefs have been dying off so much. So coral reefs are the kind of buffer for islands in the tropical zone that oyster reefs are in the temperate zones. If you're standing at the coastline, you're looking out to the water, um, and waves are coming at you, they, they create some sort of a buffer zone. If you turn around 180 and you look at facing the land, any of the icky stuff that runs comes with water as it runs across the land is also filtered by these reefs. Um, and that by that, I mean specifically the pesticides that non-organic farms use. I mean any of the residue from livestock, so dung, and all of the kinds of chemicals that flow into our drains that shouldn't, but they do, um, or off our roadways. And I don't want to say that, you know, be misquoted as saying that reefs can clean up all of this in terms of the mess, but they do provide an important source of filtering. And then aside from looking at them just as something that does important engineering work, filtering our water, <laughs> providing a buffer, they're really important habitats unto them. So I have illustrations, scientific illustrations by Zena Duretsky included in the book, which vividly depict all of the different kinds of creatures, the flora and fauna that live in these uh, reef communities. I talk in the book about two different kinds of buffers against um, sea level rise or two different kinds of broad categories of solutions. I talk about hard engineering on the one hand, so that that's things like seawalls. Um, the, there's a wall called the Big U being constructed around the southern tip of uh, Manhattan in New York to, to protect against uh, sea level rise. So I talk about sea level rise. I also talk about raising islands. So there are plans to raise these most at-risk islands, nations that I mentioned earlier, Kiribati, uh, the Maldives and the Marshall Islands are talking about this. Um, the Maldives and the Indian Ocean has already built an entire island from scratch. Um, I talk about infill a little bit, which the, um, the Kingdom of Bahrain in the Middle East is using in Singapore and the Western Pacific. And then I talk about this huge category of nature-based solutions or soft engineering. And that includes things like coral and oyster reefs. It also includes the restoration of wetlands, which also are important buffers. And I talk a bit about mangrove trees, which are these really cool trees that I talk about walking on stilts. So they have this really incredible root system that can withstand soils, the, the, the salinity I was talking about earlier that most plants can't. They can withstand it and they have this elaborate root system and they're often located along the coastline in, in tropical areas. So there's been a lot of really important work done often by islanders to restore all of these different kinds of nature-based solutions, the reef systems, the forests, the wetlands. So I was gutted a couple weeks ago when 
the Supreme Court handed down this decision on wetlands because it's going to it's basically going to decimate about 50% of wetlands. And we've already seen so many decimated, but those are some of the solutions. And a lot of them are already being put forward by Islanders. You're listening to a public affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with author Tina Gerhardt about her new book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. There's still time to give us a call today. If you have a question for Tina Gerhardt or would like to share an experience with islands, you can reach us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. So you were just talking about uh, solutions there, Tina, and both nature-based solutions and sort of high-tech engineering-based solutions. And then there's also the issue of relocation or what's called managed retreat that keeps popping up in the stories of these many islands in this book. Um, Tell us a little bit about managed retreat and the challenges that islanders who want to move or migrate due to sea level rise uh, that they face. Right. So managed retreat is something that I hear a lot. I'm phoning in from uh, San Francisco, which is home. I hear it a lot here um, being discussed in the state of California and it's also something that's being discussed on islands. And I track a couple of examples in my, of it in my book, Sea Change. So the head of state, the former head of state of the Republic of Kiribati, Anote Tong, he bought land for his island people on neighboring island of Fiji in order for them to, as he put it, be able to migrate with dignity. Um, and migration with dignity to him means that if need be, he can provide his people uh another place to live. Uh, Another example of migration, and the issue with with this purchase of land on Fiji is that Fiji itself is uh, at risk in certain areas from sea level rise. Uh, The other example that I have in sea change is in, in the Solomon Islands, which are volcanic islands, an entire community was moved inland. There was a lot of uh, social scientists, sociologists involved with that move, and they were tracking, um, going into the process, how the wishes of the community were sought out, heard, and respected in the planning process. And I think that's a really important thing to think about with regard to managed retreat is is the state uh, agency that is planning this, are they taking t- into account the wishes of the community? Are they being given a forum in order to express their wishes? So in the Solomon Islands, this was done in conjunction with this kind of planning. This entire community was moved inland. And then subsequent to the move, further uh, meetings, sessions were held with the community to learn and ascertain how they felt about the move and how they were dealing with the move. Um, I looked at managed retreat in the time that I was at Princeton in Sayreville, New Jersey, where we did a walking tour. I do these walking tours called the high water line. If people do a Google search for high water line in Princeton or high water line and uh, Honolulu, they should come up with them. We look, we walk through areas that have experienced um, severe sea level rise or are forecast to experience it. And so Sarahville, New Jersey is a town that was heavy hit by Hurricane Sandy. And New Jersey, the state had a has a program called Blue Acres where they offer buyouts for people for homes. And in the case of Sayreville, what was interesting, it's a it's a predominantly white working class community. What was interesting about it is that most of the people who participated, a, lo- a high percentage of people first off participated in the buyout. And that was interesting, firstly, because it doesn't always work that way. And then secondly, most of them stayed in the city. And that's also highly unusual. There's a number of reasons why that's important. Obviously, from our our vantage point, it might be important for the sake of cohesion of our community. We know how gentrification, for example, can really break apart cohesions of communities. From a city's vantage point, you want people to stay in the community and to be homeowners in the community because that's a tax base, that's a property tax, that's a source of revenue. And so that's, you know, that's something to consider financially when when people move is if people actually leave an area entirely, there's an entire source of income that that 
local jurisdiction is missing. If, if people want to read up more on, on this issue, um, it's touched on in part in uh, Grist journalist Jake Biddle's new book called The Great Migration, which talks about the climate crisis in the U.S. and how it will be a major motor of migration, not only across borders, because we often think about, you know, climate migrations as across borders, but it's actually an internal story and it isn't tracked a lot. And speaking of migration across borders, we should, I think, briefly also touch on the issue of climate refugee status or lack of it and how that has affected people from Pacific Island nations in particular, Tina. Yeah, right. So thanks for asking about the issue of climate refugees. It's not in the UN Convention on Refugees, which is a convention that was was created in, in the wake of the refugee crisis unleashed by the Holocaust by the Nazis in World War II. And the reason is simple, is that the climate crisis wasn't really one of the reasons that was included that could unleash a refugee crisis. So there has been a call to update the UN Convention on Refugees and include the climate crisis as one of the possible reasons why people might be migrating across borders. Um, action has not been taken yet to shift that language, but I think we're going to keep seeing need to address uh, the the refugee crisis um, in terms of the climate angle. George Monbiot, the uh, British journalist who often writes for The Guardian, just had an article in The Guardian, I think it was last week, about how addressing the climate crisis, you know, it's a twin crisis, he said, addressing the climate crisis would also address the right wing rhetoric against refugees. So, you know, that's another way to think about this issue. I definitely want to take a few moments before we have to wrap up to talk about your book as an atlas, which we haven't got to touch on too much yet um, as we focused on the voices in the book and the issues in the book. But it's also a beautifully produced atlas, and I'd like to have you talk a little bit about the mapping choices. I want to tell you out there listening right now that each section of the book focuses on a, a, an ocean or a region of the world and features uh, a two-page map of that ocean with uh, locations featured in the book highlighted. And then for each island or island nation has a map and then a timeline with it, um, some basic demographic information, and then followed by narrative, poems, science. But tell us a little bit more about the specific challenges you faced mapping climate change in this or mapping sea level rise, more particularly in this book, Tina. Yeah, thanks for calling attention to the maps. Um, Molly Roy is the cartographer who I collaborated with for Sea Change. Uh, Leah Chandra is at UC Press, University of California Press, which published the book last month. And she is the one who's responsible for making it um, so beautiful. It is, I mean, I had no hand in that. It is, a, I think, you know, a beautiful book, and she did a great job on it. Um, it is an atlas, and that is one of the most colonial genres there is. And I, I use that genre knowingly. Um, asked uh, Leah to hold to the traditional color schemes of atlases historically, which is the the yellows, and the blues that you see in, in sea change. And then I tweaked a lot of things to push back against the colonial genre. Um, so specifically with, the, with regard to the timelines, I didn't start with where histories often start of islands, which is, you know, I'll use shorthand, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. They typically start with what gets referred to as contact. A uh, term that I find kind of bizarre, but I, I worked really hard to do research um, in the archives and history books to draw that history back to the earliest documented history from an islander vantage point. So that often pulls the histories back by thousands of years. Um, I worked really hard to document the original inhabitants of islands, so predominantly indigenous uh, peoples uh, in the Pacific, which is about 20 of the 49 islands, and also in the Caribbean, which is the second largest cluster of islands. Um, the Caribbean, rightly so, is often considered to have predominantly Black inhabitants. 
um, which is the majority demographic there. But I wanted to include the indigenous peoples who lived on islands in the Caribbean prior. And then there's layers upon layers of people who have emigrated to islands subsequently. And I, for each island, I also include those demographics. But I pull the timelines back a little bit further. I also try to pull the timelines up to the present day, not just with regard to hurricanes and climate crisis impacts, but also with gestures to, I don't know, what you know, what Catherine McKittrick writing in Dear Science um, and Christina Sharp and her work in the wake have, have talked about in terms of creating livable lives for Black people or for Indigenous people, what um, uh, Visner has called survivance, right? This notion of living, um, continuing on. I didn't want it, the extinction narrative to dominate for uh, the indigenous populations on the islands. I didn't want, you know, black trauma and, you know, the, the history of, of the Atlantic, um, you know, the slave trade to dominate for, for black people's histories in the Caribbean. So that's what I was really looking for in moving the story forward to the present day is signs of revitalization of languages, of oceanic navigation traditions, of a lot of islanders taking action themselves to address the climate crisis when nations in the global north who are responsible haven't been taking that action. And I think that's a good place to bring us to your own takeaways from this project, what has been most inspiring for you to both learn and share, and what you would like uh, the reader to take away in a minute or so we have left, Tina. I think what's been most heartening and inspiring is to see um, the the richness of of the cultures, of all the variations of the cultures, and to see the kinds of actions that islanders are taking to address this climate crisis. Um, you know, as, as the mantra of the islanders in the Pacific is, um, we are not drowning, we are fighting. So that's been one of my main takeaways. And I think for listeners who aren't on islands or of islander heritage, I think I would just close by saying action is always better than inaction in terms of addressing this issue. That's Tina Gerhardt, and we've been talking about her new book, Sea Change, An Atlas of Ri Islands in a Rising Ocean. She will be here in Madison presenting the book at A Room of One's Own bookstore this coming Sunday, the 25th at 5 p.m. in conversation with Tia Nelson. So you can come on down and hear her uh, read from the book and learn more about the project and see it. As I said, it's a really beautifully produced complex book that gives a new perspective on the issue of sea level rise and the complexity of islands and island life around the world. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tina. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me on, Douglas. It's been great to join you. You've been listening to A Public Affair. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Sholly Pittman. We have a special coming up today, uh, honoring Juneteenth, a special from Living on Earth, focusing on eco-justice and African foodways. Stay tuned for that. Thank you, listeners, for joining us on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and support it Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported